Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, 7, and 19 through 27. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Who serves as a soldier in his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word. Good morning. Uh, good to see so many of you. I didn't introduce myself before, so let me do that now. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We have been this summer talking about some of the strategic applications of our theology that shape our ministry as a church in our unique cultural time and setting, what we would call our core commitments, or we've been referring to it as our theological vision. Now, I have to tell you this morning, uh, I, uh, I started to call around to the staff yesterday afternoon because I really have been so so moved, I think, by the things that we've been seeing happening in our culture over the last week that I really felt like it was a good opportunity uh, for us to to address that. Uh, you know, race relations in our in our society, but, but even more than that, what seems to me to be an ability on all sides to to not be able to to come together in a rational, calm manner and have discussions about how we can move forward as a society, but all of this emotion and violence and so forth. And so I really, I really felt like I, the, God had kind of given me something that I wanted to say, but in talking with our staff, I think what we're going to do is next week, I think we're going to take a break. And I know it'll be a week removed from some of the emotion of the past week. Maybe that'll be a good thing. But next week, we want to kind of just take a break and just talk about that for a little while. So I hope you'll come back because I do think it's worth us finding a voice because I just don't find very many people who, who, with a voice that are saying things that are really profitable. And so I hope that maybe we can, that we can find it together and figure out how we would address these things, not only on a national scale, but here in our city because there's issues here in our city. But that's next week. And so I'm a little, I'm a little removed from my heart where my heart is this morning. And I just wanted to make you aware of that. But I do think there's some really important things for us to talk about in this text 
in 1 Corinthians 9 this morning. So if you, um, if you would look there with me. Uh, we are, we are um, in what we're doing, we're, we're talking about some different parts of our vision. In the first, first uh, little bit, we were talking about the gospel. And what we were saying uh, when we were talking about the gospel is we're really aiming for balance. So Susan, do we have a slide up there? I think we do. Uh, and so, okay, this, that's the second part. Th- that's okay. Um, with the gospel, what we said is the, the issue with the gospel is you really have to find the center core between the, the, um, the errors of legalism on one side or moralism and immoral living or antinomianism or whatever big word you'd like to attach to that. Legalism and license, religion and irreligion, that the gospel is something that, that is neither of those two things. Those are imbalances that we have to keep the balance in seeking after the gospel. But now as we turn to what it looks like for us to be engaged in our city, it's the same thing. You see this slide. There are dangers in addressing and being a city vision church. We said that last week. Being a city vision church. And you can see from this slide that there are two, again, we're, we're trying to balance between two dangers. The one danger is that the church become under-adapted or too antagonistic to the culture that it finds itself in. And then it becomes a scary place for people to ask questions or have conversations. It can become inhospitable to seekers and skeptics, and we don't want that. We don't want that, but we also want to be careful that the church doesn't become over-adapted or too enculturated or assimilated to the culture that it finds itself in. And what happens then is you fling the doors wide open, you say all ideologies are equally valid, but in the process you run the risk of losing a uniquely Christian identity and truth. And so an example, an example of the over-adapted uh, the right side of that screen up there behind me. A great example of that would be there's a mainline denomination in our, in our, in our nation. A mainline Christian denomination in our nation this summer that opened the proceedings of their national assembly with a prayer to the Christian God and then a second prayer to Allah. Uh, by, a, by, a, by a imam. Right? And so, I mean, that, that's a danger. There's a danger that we, are, that we are losing the distinctiveness of our faith in a culture that is trying desperately to cause it to be eroded. It's a narrow road we're walking. Not to ghettoize on the periphery of the culture and remain apart, because that's not faithfulness, but, but not also uh, to remain active and involved at the center of things, but not be consumed by the culture and lose our distinctive belief and values, because that's not faithfulness either. And so what does that look like for our church? What does that look like for, for us as a people here in this place? Not in theory, but I think a little more practically than maybe we were able to get to last week. And here's, here's our topic for this morning. Now, you notice I didn't give you an outline at all. That's because on Thursday when I had to turn this in, I wasn't exactly sure how we were going to get after these things. So we're walking by the Spirit this morning, I guess you could say. Uh, but I do have a plan. Don't worry. It means for us to become a missional community. You see that, the title of the sermon, A Missional Community? Well, what do I mean by a missional community? And let me, so let me, let me try to define this before we get into the text, so bear with me for just a minute. And again, I said this last week, if you're here and you're not a Christian, yeah, this is kind of like uh, having your ear inside a family meeting. The church was having a family meeting this morning, but we're going to get to some applications for Christian, non-Christian, no matter who you are, later uh, as we go through this. Well, let me talk about this. What does it mean to be a missional community? Well, Notice the word community there, right? It's there. A missional community. So in the first place, the local church should be a group that is fiercely, fiercely committed to one another, that experiences deep intimacy and friendship with one another. But here's the thing. But at the same time, so 
fiercely committed, experiencing deep intimacy and friendship with one another. But at the same time, all of the energy and, uh, and focus of the group is not on the group itself, but all of, all of its energy and focus is on those who are not a part of the group. So a missional community is a community or a group that exists for something other than the group, something greater than the group. It exists for mission. And so the local church should be a place where people truly experience community, but the goal is not community, the goal is mission. So deep friendship and relationship, lots of time together, but what's unique about it is it never becomes insular. It's always looking outside of the group to bring other people in. So the group doing whatever it has to do to invite people in and make room for them to have the same experience of friendship and belonging and love that they've had. Now, you can see right away we fit a snag. We hit a snag here, don't we? And here's how this has happened in our church. From the very beginning of, of this church, we've been committed to community groups, to, to small groups where deep relationship and belonging happen. We've also, from the very beginning, been committed to a strategy of the multiplication of those groups. It's gotten us into a lot of trouble as pastors over the years. Because here's what happens. We put a group together. Those people become close. They love their times together. It starts to get nice and cozy, and everybody's having such a great time. And then one of the mean pastors comes along and says, okay, it's, you guys have become too big. It's time for you to, uh, to multiply and, and make, make multiple groups. And then there's confusion, and people get angry. Why? Well, here's the things they say. They say things like, well, you told us to be friends. We've become friends. And now you're telling us to break up. What's the deal? And I really, I'm sympathetic to that. I really am. Because this does seem like we're talking about two contradictory things, doesn't it? Community and mission. But this is what is unique about the Christian community. The gospel gives us unique emotional, spiritual resources to pull this off. To fiercely love people and pursue community but not make it into an idol. And what I mean by that is so that when the mission requires something of us, we can say goodbye to one another, and we can lean into Jesus, and we can move away from comfort from our close circle of friends towards those who need us the most so that we can bring them in too. Now, the church is a different kind of group. You can see, right? That's a different kind of group. The church is a much different kind of group. It doesn't exist for those already a part of the group. The church exists for those on the outside. It's an outward-faced group. A, a missional church is a church where every part, you see this here in the outline, it's the only thing I gave you, so hold on to this, I suppose. It's, a, it's where every part of the ministry is outward-faced, where in everything we do, we're taking into consideration the needs of the culture, uh, the needs in the culture of people who are not a part of us, where we, who don't believe like us. So a missional church is a church that's hospitable to new people, specifically to non-Christians, to skeptics, and to seekers. And that's what we're aiming to be. And we've got to talk about it because it's so, so different from our experience, most of us anyway. And so what does it look like for us to be a church hospitable to people different than us, who believe different than us, people that are skeptics and seekers uh, and who don't share our faith? And in order for us to really become a church that can do that, we have to really kind of, we have to um, solve these three puzzles, so to speak. And here they are. So I do have three, three points this morning. You've got to first, every single one is first, we have to know the church's place within the culture. Secondly, you've got to know your place within the church. And then thirdly, you've got to know the place of the gospel within your life. So you've got to know the church's place within the culture. You've got to know your place within the church. And then you've got to know what the place of the gospel is in your life. 
And if we can solve those three puzzles, then we will, we will begin to be, be a people uh, like Paul is describing of his own ministry here in 1 Corinthians 9. So let's talk about that together, can we? So to become a missional church, first we have to know the church's place within the culture. And the insight here from the text is that Paul is doing cross-cultural ministry. So look there in 1, in 1 Corinthians 9 with me. He is writing about cross-cultural ministry uh, when he says in, in verse 20, I became all things to all people, to the Jew I become like the Jew, to the weak I become like the weak, and so forth. Paul is describing a flexibility of form and strategy for his ministry because what's happening is, is the gospel is going beyond the Jews to the Gentiles all over the ancient Mediterranean world. And so as Paul goes into these new places, he has to change the way he does things. And he has to adapt to new situations. And I would say to you, this is something that the 21st century church is really failing to do. Because of this, not long ago, we lived in a Christianized culture. Maybe as recently as when I was a child in the, in the 80s. In, the, in those days, the cultural institutions, schools, even media and advertising and so forth, all of these things, these cultural institutions assumed basic Christian beliefs. They actually helped. They actually helped give people a basic Christian worldview and vocabulary. There was Christian language and story that were reinforced all over the culture. And the culture encouraged faith, you could say. And so the momentum of culture moved people towards religious faith, not away from it. So the culture actually gave people a Christian conscience, but didn't give them a Christian heart. And so, you know, an example, at my high school graduation, I'm getting to the age where I, I think I said this, where I shouldn't tell you what year I graduated from high school, but in the 90s, uh, in the early 90s, my high school graduation, uh, we had an invocation. We actually had somebody say a prayer at, at you know, at my, my high school graduation. Now, when my parents were in high school in the 60s, they not only, they not only played, prayed at graduation, they prayed at every home football game. And one of my dad's favorite stories is, you know, he, the, the guy's praying up in the press box, you know, keep everybody safe and dear God, let the big blue win. Amen. So I'm not sure how helpful it was. Seems kind of partisan uh, and dangerous, but nevertheless, it was a part of the culture at that point. Peter Drucker tells a story about coming to America in the 1940s, and when he, he went to a bank to get a loan to buy a house, and this is in the 40s. Think about this. In the 40s, 70 years ago, uh, the bank required a reference from a pastor or a priest in order to get a loan. <laughs> wow, that got an amen from the back. And he asked, he asked, why, no, why, do, why do I need that? And here's what the bank official told him. He said, why, why would we trust anybody who wasn't religious to pay back, to pay back their, their loan? I mean, what motivation would they have for making good on their loan? Think about how far we've come. I mean, it's obviously, this kind of thing is no longer the case. The momentum of the culture no longer moves people towards religious faith. It is now a tidal wave of secularism and unbelief that's sweeping people away. And if you're raising teenagers, you know this too well. Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary to India in the 20th century, so he was doing, like Paul, cross-cultural church planting in a culture that had no sympathy or familiarity with Christianity whatsoever. He came back, he, he has written some books that have been really, really... Um, Formative for our group of churches being planted, but many others planting churches in the United States. He came back to Britain from India, when, and, and what he realized was is that in the time that he had been away, the 30 years or so that he had been away, there had been such a massive shift 
in Western culture, that Western culture had become non-Christian or post-Christian. The culture no longer did what it once did. It no longer Christianized people. But here's the thing. He noticed. He said, you know, even though the culture's changed so much, the church, the church hasn't. The church hasn't adapted. So whereas in times before, churches didn't really have that much work to do, to be honest. They kind of, in the 40s and 50s, churches just set up shop, and the people who came in the doors were already mostly Christian. They had a Christian conscience. They understood the language of Christianity. They knew the stories, all of these things. So all you had to do was really kind of produce a conversion and make sure there was room in the pews for them, and, and you know, you could have a church. Newbegin's point was that this is no longer the case. That Here's the thing. Here's what I want you to see, that ministry in America and an American society today in the 21st century has become just as cross-cultural as ministry in India is and as it was for Paul when he writes these words. Every church, in, even in our little city, is in some cases, in, in, in some sense, doing cross-cultural ministry, but hardly any churches are acting like that's the case. Church, churches should be thinking like missionaries, but they're not. That's what Newbigin said. And as a result, here's what's happening. We're mostly reaching into the culture with the gospel. Uh, we're, excuse me. We're, we're not very effectively reaching into the culture with the gospel. At least, you know, that's mostly the case. Most of the church growth experiences that, that churches are having are people who are already Christian but then moving into a community and they're looking for a church or they're just changing churches. But we're not reaching non-Christian people. And we won't if we're not in, intentional. See, there's still places in America where there's a Christianizing cultural effect. Memphis, Tennessee, for example, the Bible Belt, where you know, 45 to 60% of people in the city go to church on a, on a weekly basis. But Polk County, it's interesting, Polk County is good old boy as we can be. Polk County is not one of those places. 17% of our county has any affiliation with the church. Florida is much more like the Northeast than it is Alabama, Tennessee, and these kinds of places. This is not the Bible Belt. And so we won't reach new people and people who don't believe like us just by accident. We have to be intentional. And to be intentional, the solution is, from this text, a missional church is what we're talking about this morning. So in Jesus' ministry, here's what I want you to see in that, in that uh, Matthew 9 passage that Jonathan read a minute ago. In Jesus' ministry, there was an intentional movement towards outsiders and unbelievers. So Jesus hardly ever passed up an opportunity to eat with moral and social outcasts like tax collectors and other sinners. I appreciated him saying that to us this morning. Now you need to know this confused and I guess you could say upset the religious leaders, which is what caused that conflict there. And I love Eugene Peterson's translation so much of those verses when Jesus explains uh, that it was a philosophy of ministry decision on his part. And here's what he says. He says, this is the message. He says, I came not to invite outsiders, excuse me, I came to invite outsiders and not to coddle insiders. Now you need to know, pastors love to do this and your pastor does too, pastors love to coddle insiders. It's typically because insiders love to be coddled. There's enormous pressure to do this, but Jesus points us to another way. A missional church Pattern after the ministry of Paul here that we're looking at this morning is a church where insiders are focused on outsiders and not on themselves. And so how? Well, let me apply this in a couple of ways before we move on to the next point. In one, in one sense, what we have to do here is what this means is that every part of the church's life 
must become hospitable to people who are not believers or who don't know what they believe so that they can come into small groups, they can come into a setting like this uh, and not feel confused or out of place. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, we want to say we're so glad you're here. And we want this to be a place where you can ask the questions that are on your heart and where you can be real about where you are and not feel like you have to put on some kind of air to fit in. That's just not the case. The way people become Christians in a post-Christian culture is by belonging before they believe. And that, many times, is a really long process. And so we have to make room for skeptics and doubters and not be intimidated by their questions. The sermons have to address both Christians and non-Christians. Community groups have to be open, not closed, to new people and and non-Christians. Even our informal gatherings, we have to use the times we're together to intentionally invite new people, not just the same old group of friends, to get together. I mean, in a church like ours, in a city like this, where there are deep, long-standing relationships, it can be hard for new people to break in. We have to make it easy. And so in many ways, evangelism, before you even get to the sharing of the gospel message, evangelism is as simple as looking in the right direction. Looking out, not in. And so every part of the church's life becoming hospitable. It's why we avoid insider language. When I went to, when I went to um, uh, assessment for church planting, one of the things, you preach a sermon, and it's a really scary thing because these people in lab coats like follow you around with clipboards for like five days and mark down every single thing you do wrong. It's terrifying. And one of the things, one of the things you do is you have to preach a sermon, and literally they're all back in the back, and they're not taking notes because they think what you're saying is so great. They're taking notes to make sure they can tell you everything you did wrong. And one of the big things was, do you use insider language? Do you say things that would not be readily available and understandable to non-Christian people, and they flag you for those things? We've got to be careful not to use language that people that don't share our faith wouldn't understand. It's why we take so much care when we do a baptism or membership or the Lord's Supper or whatever the case might be to explain what we're doing. Because it's what it means to be hospitable to people who don't believe just like us. Every part of the church's life and ministry becoming hospitable to those that are outside. But then secondly, what we see from Paul here, a commitment to contextualization. This is what Paul's saying. I go here and I'm with these people and I realize I've got I've to change and become more like them so that, there can, that, so that the message can communicate to them properly. There's an offensive core to the gospel that can't be stripped away, but the key is to know what the substance of the gospel is that can't be changed and what is just part of the Christian subcultural forms that can be laid aside and to do that when it's necessary. And this is what Paul's famous line refers to. I become all things, see that verse 22? I become all things to all people that I might win some. His ministry took on different forms as he moved throughout the different peoples in the ancient world and ours, ours should too. Because that's what it means. The church, you've got to know, you got to know the place of the church within the culture. And you've got to be patient with us as leaders as we try to lead us in ways that, that we can become hospitable to people who don't share our faith and really have our mind and heart full of those that are still outsiders. But the second thing is, second Let's keep moving. You've got to know not only the place of the church within the culture, but you've got to know your place within the church. And here I just want to say this. I remember a sentence from Erwin McManus, a Southern Baptist church uh, pastor who planted a church in downtown Los Angeles years ago when it was like on the front, the, the front wave of this sort of thing. He planted a church in a bar in, in downtown L.A. He just said this. He said, the church doesn't exist for us. We are the church and we exist for the world. The church doesn't exist for us. We are the church, and we exist for the world. And the challenge here is what, what we might call religious consumerism. So we have been so thoroughly trained by our culture to see ourselves as consumers with needs to be met, 
you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and all of that. We are needy. That's how we basically think of ourselves. I have all these needs that, I, that I'm in need of, you know, finding a solution to. And so people come into the church loaded up with these assumptions. Salvation, then, becomes about what God does to meet our needs. It becomes about these sorts of things. Overcoming our guilt, solving our problems, discovering the meaning of our existence so that we can be free to express ourselves how we feel most natural, feeling excluded and loved and a part of a community, and all, of course, with God's help. The church's job then becomes, you know, to get with the program, to help me feel better about myself, to give me opportunities to meet people so that I can have friends, help me find a ministry so I can feel like I'm being useful, and so on. And this is what pastors, just so you know, I get to tell you what it feels like sometimes on this end of things. This is what pastors face from the insiders, this high sense of expectation. Well, I'd like the music to be this way. Make sure the preaching isn't too long. We need a good children's program, and you know, a youth group's important. It's like a spiritual golden corral where everybody can get whatever they feel like they need. If you want shrimp, go for the shrimp. If you want steak, go for the steak. If you want pasta, they got that too. Right? It don't, I mean, I'm serious. It's funny, but I'm being serious. So, and then what happens is as churches grow, more and more energy It just naturally works this way. More and more energy begins to go to servicing the needs of the insiders who are clamoring for these sorts of things. And then you get churches like one of our churches in our in our um, in our little network that you know you get churches that begin to pull people about what they'd like to see in the church. We're never going to do that. Here's why: because we don't believe in festivus. We don't need an airing of grievances. Okay, we don't need that. That's not good for you. Trust me when I say it's not good for me. We're just going to, we're going to, because we're, we're here, we're here to be about something more than that. If you want an illustration of how this works in our own church, we were having a discussion, a session meeting um, a couple months ago that I, was really, really powerful for me uh, because I, I really, we don't have, beyond what we do on Sunday mornings, we were just talking about hiring a children's ministry person, uh, which we've, we've hired with Misty and thinking, you know, what do we want that person to be? And oh, you know, we have people in this church that send their kids to Awana programs at other churches, and that feels so yucky. We should have an Awana program here so that people never have to leave. And, and I just started to get really knotted up about this. And one of the guys just looked at me and said, stop. We want to plant churches. Because that's how we believe we can reach the city. And if we do that, if we start doing those kinds of things, we will not achieve this goal over here. So if you want a great Awana program, we don't need one. You know why? Because there are multiple churches in the city that have great Awana programs. But I don't know of a church that's trying to plant missional communities all over the city. So that's what we're doing. Let's stay on mission. And I was like, okay, okay, right, you're right. So see, even I need, even I need this. Even I need this reminder at times. Even I need this reminder. Let me, let me offer you an illustration. Maybe that would help. Imagine, imagine yourself standing on the shore of a rushing river. Now, when I say a river, don't think the Peace River, which just creeps along. Picture the Nantahala or the Colorado River with rapids and waterfalls and so forth. Now, most of us like to think of Christianity something like this. We're familiar with the river. We like the river. We may even live near the river. And when we get tired and when we need refreshing, we come to the river to get a drink or we wade out into the river up to our knees, or if we feel dirty, we come and we get some water from the river to wash our clothes. But all the time, we're very careful to stay near the shoreline for for fear of being carried away by the pull of the water. That's not Christianity. That's consumerism. Christianity is you come to the edge of the river, you see its power, 
you know that if you get caught up in the current, you're going to be swept away, probably dashed against the rocks, and maybe even drown. And then you jump. And you let the river take you where it takes you. See, a missional church is not full of people who think of themselves and their, their spiritual and physical needs first. A missional church is rather a church full of people who think of themselves differently. Listen, not who think of themselves as, as people with needs to be met, but rather people with capacities and gifts to be given. A missional church, the way, the way healthy Christians function is not to think of themselves as people who are full of spiritual and physical needs to be met, but rather to think of themselves as people full of capacities and gifts to be given to God and to others. And Paul offers three metaphors to help you find your place within the church. If you're a Christian, he says, and I wish we had time to really meditate on these. We don't. Maybe we can come back to this another time. But just look here at the very beginning in in verse 7 up there at the top of the passage. Paul says, if you're a Christian, you're a soldier, you're a farmer, and you're a shepherd. Look there, verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? And who plants a vineyard without calling it, eating any of its fruit? And who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So not just Paul, not just pastors. That's the, we could debate that, but for, the, for our you know, purposes this morning, not just Paul, not just pastors, but everyone in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're not a consumer, you're a soldier. You're a soldier, and the church is a gospel uh, company, and our community groups are gospel platoons because life is war. C.S. Lewis said, this is enemy-occupied territory. The church is not a sitcom or a soap opera, although it takes the character of those things sometimes, doesn't it? And that happens when we forget there's a war that's raging, and we are called to fight. Your job is to fight. Your job is to fight because you're, you're a Christian. You're not a consumer. You're a soldier, and if you're a Christian, you're not a consumer. You're a farmer because the church and the world is like a f- God's field. And you are to use your gifts to cultivate the ground and make it fruitful. So your job is to sow. And so just as the farmer waters and, and, and uh, fertilizes and weeds and fusses over the crops, so we are to water and weed and fertilize and fuss over one another. Tending to one another. Caring for this one another. The soil of one another's hearts. And if you're a Christian, I told you I don't have time to, to do much of this we got to keep going. You're not a consumer. You're a shepherd. Not just me. I'm not the only shepherd. Jonathan and I and whoever, we're not the only shepherds. We're all shepherds because the church is God's flock. And so your job is to care and protect. And the thing about sheep is they're stupid. They need constant attention. And so we are to shepherd and care for one another. To, to serve as soldiers. To work as farmers. To love as shepherds. These are the metaphors that should shape the way we view ourselves. We have to use the right metaphors in order to imagine our place in the church. The church doesn't exist for you or for me. You know, the church doesn't exist for you or me. We are the church and we exist for the world. And so your place in the church is not defined by your needs, but by your capacities and gifts. And then thirdly, thirdly, let's finish. You've got to know the church's place in the world and you've got to know your place in the church. But lastly, you've got to know the gospel's place in your heart. And here's where I think we can just find some application for every single one of us. Uh, in the room this morning. So let's spend the rest of our time talking about that. Now, if you're not a Christian, you've been listening in on a family meeting, but let me draw our attention to the gospel truth that has the application and the things that we've been talking about, but almost in every other area of our life as well. And it's down in verse 19, and that's where I'm going to finish the rest of our time. Paul says, though I am free from all, he says, I have made myself a servant of all. I just want you to stare at that, at that phrase. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. So on the one hand, 
Paul says he's free from all. In other words, he doesn't live his life according to the expectations and demands of other people. Can you imagine what that would be like? Some of you say, yeah, of course. Some of you say, no, I have no idea. And here's, here's, where we're, here's what we're getting to. Paul doesn't make decisions based on what others want from him. That's not what's motivating him at all. I'm free from all of that, he says. So the reason Paul's free from the fear of man and people pleasing like this is because he's free from the law. He goes on to say, verse 20, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. So he says, I'm no longer under the law. That means that he's become completely immune, excuse me, from the whole works righteousness system that's a part of a religious identity. He doesn't feel bad about himself when he's been bad. He doesn't feel good about himself when he's been good. Um, there's no connection to his performance and his identity whatsoever. So on a vertical level, he doesn't connect with God's love. Uh, he doesn't connect God's love with his performance whatsoever. He lives with a constant sense of God being his loving father and friend, and nothing can take that away from him. The sense of God's love never leaves him. He's completely free. There is no have to in his life anymore. He can eat food sacrificed to idol. That's idols. That's chapter 8. He, can't, he, he, he cannot eat. It doesn't matter. He can have a glass of wine with dinner. Or he can drink a Coke. He can wear shorts and, to church. Or he can wear a suit. Because it doesn't matter. He's completely free. Now, I, I marvel at that. I don't know about you. And I think, how, how did he get to be that way? And I think the answer is there in the text, but in other places too. Paul could live out from underneath the law because he knew that Jesus lived under it in his place. That's the gospel answer to that question. Listen to Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born under the law to redeem those under the law. Jesus has freed us from the law by destroying the law. In his life, Jesus was perfectly obedient to every detail of the law of God and thus deserved God's love and blessing. Yet on the cross, he was condemned and killed as a lawbreaker in our place. And so the gospel is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that the lawkeeper was treated as a lawbreaker so that we who are lawbreakers might be treated as lawkeepers. In his death, the stone table of the law has cracked down the middle. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, no matter how checkered your past, no matter how deep your sin goes in the present, no matter how badly you might blow it in the future, there is nothing, 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 nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Now, what that did for Paul is it filled him with joy and peace and confidence that never left him. He was so filled up with God's love that it didn't matter at all what other people thought of him. I'm completely free, he says. I don't, I don't live for other people's approval. I don't need them to like me or applaud me. I'm free from all of that. In fact, he's writing as an apostle to say, I'm free from all of that. I have no obligation to you whatsoever. In fact, you have an obligation to me as an apostle, but I have no obligation towards you. I'm completely free of needing anything from you. My life's not tied to how you view me at all, but here's the amazing thing. Paul says, though I'm free from all. <laughs> Look at the next phrase, verse 19. I'm free from all, but I've made myself a servant to all. So on the one hand, Paul says, I don't need anything from other people. I don't have to do what they want me to do. I'm not bound by their expectations or demands, but yet, but yet. I willingly make myself their servant. I submit myself to others and allow their needs and desires to impact my life. I don't have to do this. I'm not motivated by, 
by need, but rather by love. And in love, he says, I put aside my rights and my privileges and allow myself to be inconvenienced because it's not about me. I don't need for it to be about me. That's, that's Paul's freedom. The freedom of Paul is that he doesn't need for it to be about him. It can be about them. And so that's why he flexes. He changes. He adapts according to the needs of the people that he's with. See, he's not rigid. He's not stubborn. It doesn't have to be this way. And that was the secret to the gospel power in his ministry, this unselfing, this ability to put the needs of others ahead of his own preferences and desires. And let me say, are you with me when I say this? This is completely off the charts of anything normal that I've ever known or experienced. Paul says he's a slave to what other people need. Now that sounds very codependent. Codependence is bad. And codependence... Codependent people, I may or may not be speaking from experience, never say no to anything. They never say no to anything because, you know, we have a little magnet on our refrigerator that says, stop me before I say yes to something else, right? Codependent people never say no to anything because they need for you to like them. They need to be needed. That's the emotional, that's the brokenness emotionally in their life. And so the solution, of course, is boundaries, right? Boundaries. Codependent people need proper boundaries, but Paul has boundaries too. So he's not codependent. You know, he has boundaries. He says, I'm free from all. I don't need people to be okay with me in order to be okay. So he's not codependent. But look, he's not pro-boundaries either. And that's what's unique. Codependency is not love because you're doing it for you. You're loving and serving others to meet your own needs and not necessarily theirs. But boundaries is not love either if you're willing to, to wall off your life from others and refuse to be bothered by their needs. Paul walks the tightrope between the two and shows us what love is. He says, you don't control me. You don't control me, but if you need me, I'm there. Isn't that amazing? You don't control me, but listen, if you need me, I'm, I'm the first one. Put me on your speed dial. And this is what he means when he talks about the law of Christ. You see that in verse 30, 21? I'm no longer under the law, he says, but now I've become under the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is just this. Paul says, I have no obligation to you whatsoever. In fact, you have an obligation to me. You should be paying me for what, that's what he's writing about. You should be paying me for the things that I've been, done, been doing among you, but I'm not going to demand that of you because, again, you have an obligation to me. I have no obligation to you, but even though, even though that's the case, I'm going to make myself your slave. Isn't that exactly, isn't that exactly what the Lord Jesus did? The Lord Jesus in heaven, being God, had absolutely no obligation to us whatsoever. In fact, we have every obligation towards him, and yet, in coming to the earth, he put aside all of that and willingly made himself our slave. That's the law of Christ that Paul is talking to. It's something like this. It's a life of sacrificial and strategic love. To the Jew, I became like a Jew, Paul says. To the weak, I became weak, and so on. In other words, Paul's life was shaped by what the people that he had been sent to needed. And now what, not what he personally wanted. He didn't force people to change in order to be in a relationship with him. He was constantly changing the way he was living to make room for other people and conforming his life to their needs in order to win an audience with them for his gospel message. That's gospel ministry. Now notice the word became. Do you see how the word become or became keeps coming up? It's a Greek word that means to change. Paul was willing to change because the relationship for him was always more important than his schedule, his agenda, his to-do list, or, or uh, his Netflix, you know, cue. Whatever the case might be. A life of strategic and, and sacrificial love 
but as a result, then it also a life of radical self-restraint. And this is the last part, last part of the text that we're not going to, we've talked about in the past and not really going to get to much today, but, but down in the last verses, verses 24 through 27, so to forget yourself like this and allow yourself to be absorbed in the needs of the people around you, to become a slave to all and allow your life to be dictated to you by what others need, that makes for a hard life. It makes for a busy life, a sacrificial life, and it requires a certain amount of self-restraint. You have to be constantly reining yourself in and working on your own heart, rooting out the selfishness and self-pity and then self-righteousness that pops up in there all the time. And that's what Paul's describing there in those verses. He says, to live this way is like training for the Olympics. Like a hopeful Olympian, Paul says he's constantly reining in his desires, denying himself, refusing to become self-indulgent. Verse 25 Self-control in all things, absolute self-restraint towards a single goal, meeting the needs of others. That is the law of Christ. And that's what, what I mean to know, the, you know, if we want to be a church that reaches into the culture, this is the kind of people that we must become. And so let me just finish with one last thing. Paul says, verse 23, I do this all for the sake of the gospel. Do you see that there? He says, I live this way. Because it is how Jesus has loved me. In other words, the pattern of his love for him, Jesus' love for him, awed him and motivated to him to live for others and not for himself. And this is the key to everything that we've been talking about. The Bible says that Jesus was God, but he became man. He became nothing. He was crowned with glory and honor, and he changed and became nothing. He was eternal without beginning or end, having life in himself, and yet he changed, and he became obedient to death upon the cross. All of his life, Jesus lived not doing his own will, not seeking his own glory, but always seeking the glory of his Father and doing good for others, always with this, this radical self-restraint. And so you might say his mission statement from the Gospel of John particularly, you could say was, I'm not here for me. <laughs> I'm not here for me. And this is what we're talking about. A missional church is a group of people who all together at the same time say, I'm not here for me. They walk into a room and they don't think, well, who's here that I know that I can stick close to? No, they think, who's here that I can love? Who's new? Who's over in the corner with nobody to talk to? Who, who's been going through a hard time that probably needs somebody to push close to them? Every time the group meets, the whole group is thinking, the first thought. You want to know what a missional church is? A missional church is a church where every time we get together in large settings or small settings, the whole group is thinking, the very first thought is, where can I love today, right now? Who needs, who needs me? It takes an incredible amount of self-restraint to live that way. And so where do you find, where do athletes find the self-discipline in their training uh, that their training requires? How do they pass on the chocolate cake and eat Brussels sprouts instead? Is it because they don't want the cake? No, of course they want the cake. So how do they do it? Well, they have to want something else more. And what is it that they want more? Well, it's there in verse 24. The reason that athletes, not me obviously, but athletes can somehow find the energy to pass on the chocolate cake for the Brussels sprouts is because they want something more than the cake more. They want the prize there in verse 24. Paul was able to live this way because the gospel had become his prize. This is the issue. Listen, in Hebrews 12, it says that Jesus was able to say no to himself and endure the cross because there was a joy that was set before him. There was a prize. And what was the joy there waiting for him on the other side of the cross? What did he not have that he had to endure the cross in order to gain? There could only be one answer, and the answer is you, me. 
We, we are his prize. And when that really begins to sink down into your heart, you won't have any trouble with self-denial. How hard love can be, it won't intimidate you at all. You're his prize. And when you start to really believe that, then he'll become yours. And that's the key to the obedience that this text requires of us. And so let's pray that he would push into our hearts with that truth as we conclude our service this morning. Father, as we sing now these songs, would you continue to push into our hearts with the truth that that you do love us, that we are absolutely provided for and cared for in your care and love, that nothing can separate us from your love, that we are secure, that we have been given all that we need, uh, that every, that every, every emotional and spiritual need that we might have can be met in the gospel, but even beyond that, that we, that we can have the power and the freedom in the gospel to stop thinking of ourselves as beings that have all these needs that need to be met. That you really can come, and we need you so desperately to come and make us people who think first not of our needs, but of our gifts and our capacities, that who think first not of what can this place do for me, but, but we think what, can, what, what, what am I being called to do? Where can I love? Because the, that's, that's a people who have had a radical experience of grace. And that's a people who together have the energy and the power, the wherewithal, the focus to change a city. And that's what we want to be. And so we do pray you help us come and make us a missional church like this. That we would know the church's place in the culture. That we would know our place in the church. And that we would give way in our hearts to the place the gospel should have in us. All this so that you might be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The God that we sing about in that song is your Father in heaven who loves you. And so don't go. Don't go from this place and live as if, uh, as if it depends upon you. As if the outcome of, uh, outcomes of your life really are in your hands. But don't go from this place and live only thinking about how to take care of yourself. It's knowing that this great God in heaven is also our Father and friend. It's knowing that that can allow us to go and say, I'm free from all. But I'm going to make myself a servant of all that. I might win some uh, for God's glory. That's what he sends us to do. So receive this benediction uh, and go in obedience to his commands. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.